if I remember correctly. That was uh, Dr. Sphincter. Mm -hmm. Excuse me? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. No. It's the Ricochet Podcast. I'm James Lilacs, and I'm joined by Charles C.W. Cook, sitting in for Peter Robinson. And Rob Long, he's back. We talked to Bridge Colby about China, the good news, and the bad. So let's have ourselves a podcast. Name me a world leader who changed places with Xi Jinping. Name me one. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime. Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 629. I'm James Lilacs in Minneapolis, Minnesota, joined by Charles C.W. Cook in wonderful yeah. humid Florida. And and get this, Rob Long. Rob Long has, has completed his long journey around the world, his anabasis from the coast of the Levant inward. We're going to hear all about it, I, 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 I hope. I've been places and you, seen been things. Places. things no man should have to see. You know, actually, it was like... It's a lot of fun. It was like a good, wild kind of trip, and I just added a few extra things to it. So, is this the basic junketeering, um, swanning around with your scarf carelessly tossed? No, around? there was no junketeering. There was no junketeering. There was, uh, there was. It was all just kind of like a, a, a kind of a weird conflagration of things, which we can talk about. Um, uh, I was in Madagascar uh, for about ten days, um, traveling around Madagascar with some friends. The weirdest country on earth, by the way. If you're wondering what the weird one is, how's the vanilla industry doing? It's doing all right. I okay. mean, um, there uh, it's an interesting place. Uh, and then, um, and then from there, I was uh, uh, briefly. I was briefly in Paris because I had to make a connection to go to Israel. So I was mm -hmm. then in Israel for about twelve days. Wow! Um, and Jerusalem, the Holy Land. Uh, I saw a lot of stuff there. And then, um, then I went to Jordan, and then got somebody to drive me across the Sinai, and then I ended up in Cairo for the past week. Well, so I just got back yesterday. Tire, you say? So I'm a little bit little bit not here you if made you, it to, you want made to know the honest truth you made it to tire but not to nineveh <laughs> exactly right yeah uh, right um, well i ask about the vanilla because of course vanilla prices in the united states are through the roof the president has vowed that he's going to release some extract from the national vanilla reserve strategic reserves i think that was in the state of the union i don't know i didn't watch it but charles did part of it now, Rob, you were spared because you were out, I suppose. I was out, I, but I, I heard I, about I, it. I don't watch because they're just ridiculous, performative, theatrical nonsense. But Charles, uh, you did watch it. So if you could tell America and the world beyond uh, what you thought of what you saw. Well, I suspect you know the answer to this. And that answer <laughs> is that I hated it. And in fact, turned it off and had a drink. There you go. Instead. The proper, the proper approach. But, we've, uh, we've, let me ask you something. Did you hate it because... It was sort of, you know, classic meretricious nonsense from a politician you, you don't agree with? Or is there something special about this one that you hated? Both. So I, I'm now in the slightly paradoxical position of having told everyone how little I care about the State of the Union, but given the spiel that I'm about to deliver on five <laughs> or six different shows, mm -hmm. <laughs> I hate the State of the Union per se because I think it's unsmall R Republican. I think right. Thomas Jefferson had it right when he said it represents the speech from the throne. 
and that it is offensive to separation of powers for the president to go into the legislature and lecture them all. But I've thought that for 12 years, and I've thought that under many presidents. This one seemed to me particularly annoying, both because Biden really is a dishonest, narcissistic demagogue, and somehow managed in this particular context to be more of one than Trump was when he did the State of the Union. Dan McLaughlin at National Review pointed this out. If you go back and you read Trump's State of the Unions or watch them if you must, you will see Trump puffing himself up, as presidents do, but not really taking many shots at the other side. Biden, by contrast, didn't just lie and puff himself up. He took direct shots at the party that ran the house that had invited them. And those shots seemed to me to be both wildly dishonest and also, in many cases, completely irrelevant to things that the president should be talking about if he's going to give an address to the country. We had 47 seconds or so on the many social innovations the Democrats are obsessed with. We had nothing much on Ukraine and nothing much on China. We did have an extended spiel about Ticketmaster and resort fees. Mm-hmm. And when it came to a topic that does matter a great deal, which is our impending entitlements crisis, the president's only contribution was to lie about the Republican position and shout at them. And the Republicans' response was to behave like barn animals. And after a while, I just turned it off because I was frankly embarrassed that that's our politics at the moment. I don't want to sound too saccharine or serious, but I really am embarrassed that that was a representation of our politics. If I had been watching that from another country, I would have thought, look, this is a frivolous time. And indeed it is. Well, that just shows how out of touch you are with the American people, Charles. <laughs> yeah, um, Joe Biden came into office inheriting um, a 47% inflation rate, which he's wrestled manfully down to what it is today. Um, <laughs> And what's more, when it comes to issues outside of our purview, like things that go on in other countries, I mean, people don't care about that. What matters is getting hit with that towel fee when you check out of a hotel. Nobody expects actually having not been at a resort or done anything resort related to nevertheless have a $20 charge appended to their bill for resort fees. And the very fact that Joe Biden can laser-like focus in on something of such particular interest to people, I think, shows that he's more in touch with what Americans want than this stuff about the world, which is theoretically out there, I guess. Right. I find find that a very interesting thing for you to fixate on. That's all I'm saying. I'm I'm obsessed with the meetings, though. To me, it's the the stuff that I wanted to know about was how many meetings did it take to get resort fees in there? Mm-hmm. And what are they, what, you know, they all, these, these things are collaborative. So what was removed <laughs> for resort fees to be put in? Uh, you know, there's that moment, um, which I read about where he says, um, you know, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be fossil fuel free in 10 years. And everybody laughed. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody believes 10 years is even, I mean, even if you're, even if your goal is to be fossil fuel free, it's somewhere around 80 or 90 years is pretty much where it's supposed to be. Right. So at some point, someone wrote the fossil fuel thing in the speech, Mm -hmm. and they had a number. And they got that number from the real number, which would be 80 or 90 years, maybe 100 years, um, down to 10. 
I just want to, I, I want to be in that room and just listen to the stupid as it cascades out of people. Not even just stupid. Just well, the, when, it, when it comes the, to date, when it comes to dates like that, you know that they have a proctologist on the speech reading staff then from which somebody will tell them exactly from where they can pull a number like that. It's preposterous. And, and yeah. I understand the idea. Of, I mean, I understand that a Democratic president um, is going to talk a lot of nonsense about the environment. I get that. And I sort of expect him to say something really stupid about it. I, I get that, too. But just how they got to the 10 and the, the cynicism of it and the, 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 the complete and utter dishonesty of it suggests to me that I, I think that I will vote for any candidate now, I'll say who promises and delivers, I guess I should hard to know if they can deliver, to never del- never give a State of the Union speech. Mm-hmm. To, if required constitutionally, to simply write it and then to send it in. So I never have to hear another idiotic politician tell me something that he knows was is untrue and they knew was untrue when they sat together in the Oval Office and put it together. That's I guess that was my, that's my uh, response to it. And I read it. I didn't see it. Um, and you know, you, when you read these things, you just—it's just like my God! It's like a chat, G, G, chat AI or whatever that is. But it actually would have been a better version. Well, at some point, it's entirely possible that it will be read by somebody who's using Chat GPT and feeding it through a deep GPT, fake right. and and just you know manipulating the mouth and the rest. It could of it. only be an improvement. I mean, but it's about a year away or so. I mean, that's gonna be, <laughs> yeah. really, if that. I Ten mean, years the, away. The number of advances that are coming and cascading in AI have been remarkable this year. Since you left, Rob, I mean, it's it's gone fully sentient. I think now, and it, it 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 these are the issues that, when you look back, are going to shape the country and then shape the culture. And there's yeah. nothing whatsoever coming out of any of the people in charge that seems to reflect. Yeah, they're all too old and stupid. <laughs> can, I, can I just share a chat, a chat G, It's What is it? Chat GPI? What is it? GPT. GPT. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So uh, I was in, when I was in Jerusalem, I was with a bunch of people from my church here in Manhattan. We were sort of going to the various holy sites. And uh, one guy was there. It was a really funny guy. He's in the tech business and he had his phone, you know, he's always on chat GPT or whatever it is. <laughs> and, um, and at some point before we were eating, uh, somebody said a quick blessing and, uh, and then he said, this is, I put into chat GPT, write a blessing before the meal grace for a bunch of Episcopalians that are in Jerusalem from New York city and going to all the holy sites who saw, I don't know what we saw that day. We saw something that day, uh, something before dinner. And then chat GPT, then he read it. And it was actually pretty good. <laughs> it was actually, I mean, obviously all these things are sort of boilerplate anyway, but it was pretty good. I got to say, I mean, for all the, I mean, it could be better actually, James. We might prefer, I mean, no, we don't have Peter no, Robinson on the great speechwriter, but we might prefer as long as the, as long as it's three paragraphs, you know, you have a, the, uh, you're, you're, uh, have an upper bound for the minute. It might actually get things might actually be better. This is what I keep hearing. And I heard this in a, we had a conversation at the office the other day about we're going to do a story here, the newspaper on this and AI and the rest of it. And everybody's coming up with good examples. Well, I know somebody who's using it for this and it works pretty well. Well, I know somebody who uses it for that. Now, of course, there are ethical red lines, which we won't cross. And there are things in which it shouldn't be used. And you just right. have to laugh because every one of those lines is going to be pole vaulted over. Everybody is going to, of course, use it for whatever they possibly can. And in the end, two things happen. One, the removal of human agency and in 
in the human touch. I mean, you may have gotten a perfect little blessing there, but uh, I would prefer one <laughs> with ums and ahs and some inelegant <laughs> figures of speech and a personal note that a computer can't do. And two, the do that very, too. <laughs> Just the tell very, to do that. The very fact that everybody goes to this means that we we accept as it'll do, it's okay, the answer that the machine gives us without concentrate, without thinking for a moment about the guardrails that were in place that, that guided the machine to do what it did. Somebody the other day was asking, write a poem about this person, write a poem about this person, write a poem praising Charles Murray. And it balked, of course, it can't, it can't do that. It can't praise somebody who is ethically compromised and causes harm like Charles Murray and the rest of it. So we'll, but we'll wave that away because it does give us something convenient that we can use. And it you know, carbs our time is a little shorter and the rest of it. It's not good. And there's absolutely no way I can see to stop it unless we just sort of accept that anything that comes out that's good and, and, and smart and well-written and well-spoken comes from a machine. In the future, we will only trust the stuff that's inelegant, that's broken, that has that sort of strange uh, human touch to it. It's, I, I mean, Charles, what's your take on this? Because I'm, I, I'm a Star Trek futuristic, yes, let's go out in the stars and use our communicators and computer tell me this kind of guy. But everything about this gives me the creeps. It just does. Well, I am uh, stealing the point that I'm about to make from Dominic Pino at National Review. But he convinced me 12 seconds after he said that he thinks that it will kill Google. Well, Not yes. Google, the company. Yeah. Google will survive with email services and hosting and what you will. But it seems that it is a more efficient way of gaining all sorts of information than Googling it and being subject to the various manipulations of SEO specialists. Now, there are, of course, manipulations involved in chat GPT, as you say. And one of the projects of the American progressive movement at the moment seems to be to make chat GPT woke, mm -hmm. the code into it, all of its sensibilities. And one of the great advantages of this for them is that because they change their mind every seven minutes as to what is now imperative, then they can just update it as they go. Americans are more resistant not quite as resistant as I would like, but Americans are pretty resistant. If you say to Americans, by oh. the way, by the way, every person now can be a walrus, Americans will say, ah, I'm not sure they actually can, in a metaphysical cosmic sense, be a walrus. But ChatGPT won't argue because it is uh, in hock to its programmers. And Kukukachu is ChatGPT's response to that. Exactly. That being said, the wokeness really influences only a small part of its output, at least at the moment. And as a result, if you want to find a recipe even, but you don't want to read a thousand words that have been written purely for the purpose of getting that recipe at number one in Google, you know, how do I make pizza dough? And then they say, back in the Roman mm, right. Empire, and you just right. get the you just get the, the recipe. I think it's going to be far superior. Uh, and if I were Google, I would either be developing my own or looking to buy it uh, or looking to destroy it because it's going to be almost as much of a, right. a shake-up in the way the internet works as it was when yeah. Google's algorithm came uh, out. And I, th I think Google agrees with you. I mean, Google is already trying to come up with their own. They're you know, manning the barricades right now. They're sort of aware that this... that. 
it's a natural evolution. It's surprising to me that a company like Google, I mean, although they're slow in a lot of other ways, didn't anticipate a na- there's an you know we looked at you look at search results 20 years ago and they were a lot like search results today there's been no mm-hmm. um, movement on the part of those sort of that brain trust to try to make things easier or simpler or more human and chat gpt just like it's just basically you're saying tell me a story about something that i can read rather than giving me a bunch of like uh, essentially computer code that i have to click on um that 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 is has astonishing to the engineers and the people at google but it's not astonishing to anybody who's ever wanted to know something about something you know just i don't want to look at a bunch of search results just write me three paragraphs the danger of course is that who's writing those paragraphs right or who's who's, who's choosing the 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 data that it goes into those paragraphs yeah well the joke will be when chat gpt starts to pull its information from google right well, we look back at the old days sometimes with nostalgia because we see people walking past these news kiosks in New York City with hundreds of magazines with stacks and stacks of newspapers from all the different newspapers that were in the in the in the town before the strike killed them in the early 60s. And we think, well, you know, they didn't know as much as we do now. It was work to go through all those things, but there's a lot of information, a lot of potent information contained in that news kiosk. No one ever looks at that and says, boy, they would have been better off if there'd simply been one guy standing there with one publication, because that's what ChatGPT is. Right now, when you enter something into Google, yes, you do get a whole bunch of search results, and a whole lot of them have been manipulated by SEO. But I was looking for an obscure mid-19th century uh, uh, poet and inventor yesterday, and Google found him and gave him to me. And I also found a ton of other stuff that sent me off in other different directions. In other words, Google gave me a bat... Hmm? Uh, Who was the poet inventor? I forget his name in a second. It was, uh, <laughs> well, no, no, really. I mean, I do a dozen of these things a day. I'll find it by the end because it actually is a fascinating story. It started Mark Twain in his career. Um, but it Google gave me this basket of stuff through which I could sift. And that's where right. anything, you get all of these results on your front page and you can look around. You can, you can tell by the URL whether or not it's a BS grifter site or whether it's something interesting or whether it's academic or it's a library of Congress. And you can, you can choose from that. That's far more illustrative of the vast amount of returns that you can get than simply ChatGPT coming back with one thing and saying the sure. one thing. And that's what it becomes. It's, a, it's, 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 it's an affront to Google and a threat to Google because it's, Google at this point is work. You mean I have to click on this thing? As you as you pointed out, clicking on a bunch of computer code. You mean I got to go and see whether it's right away? ChatGPT is easier, and everything that's easier is what we adapt, and it's going to be to our disadvantage to do so. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Hey, I hate to interrupt here, but we need a spot break because that's how we make money. Capitalism, right? Raw capitalism. Anyway, <clears throat> that's it. We should get to a guest because he's here. Bridge Colby. Bridge Colby, Elbridge Colby, is the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, a policy initiative focused on developing strategies to prepare the United States for an era of sustained great power competition. He's the author of Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at, at Elbridge Colby. And, of course, we'll have that information in the sidebar at ricochet.com. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, gentlemen. 
Well, uh, before you got here, we briefly discussed the State of the Union because we were just all wrapped and uh, fascinated by every syllable. Uh, you mentioned how there, you know, the, the China thing didn't seem to play. You know, what is the China problem? What, what is the administration's China strategy? It doesn't really seem like we know what we're doing. Or do we? Give us a one to ten evaluation of how you think the administration is handling China, and also. Whether or not China is uh, the sort of strong strider of the globe that it seems to be today, or is challenged by many internal problems, primarily demographic. Let me let me uh, break that apart. Um, the first thing I want to say is the right way to measure how we or the administration is doing is not relative to how administrations of the past did it, although they may deserve credit on that front, but re- relative to the threat. And this is really critical because a lot of our of our foreign policy debate is self-referential uh, and kind of, if you will, solipsistic. And in that context, I, I want to quote something from uh, a really authoritative source, which is to say Top Gun. Uh, which is, you know, uh, there are no points for second place, right? So mm-hmm. actually, in fairness, I have to give the administration pretty good marks on a lot of things. I have to give them good marks on um, the sanctions, uh, on the semiconductors, on the posture announcements mm-hmm. uh, that have been rolled out with the Japanese and the Filipinos, uh, the Australians and others over the last year or so. Uh, and there are other things that they're doing. Their, their national defense strategy, like ours in the Trump administration, is focused on China. Uh, they're overhauling, you know, the, the military leadership overhauling, particularly the Marine Corps and the Air Force, et cetera. I could go on. That's all the good part. And that actually compares favorably to some of the, the, the previous administration, including elements of the one in which I am proud to have served. I, I want um, to stop. I want to stop you right there because you mentioned something about the semiconductors. Did we okay. not decapitate essentially a lot of their AI research, a lot of their semiconductor invest, uh, inventing possibilities with a with a series of requests and requirements that we made about people as regards to their citizenship? We just we just made a whole bunch of people who work there come home and take them away from China. Uh, I don't think we decapitated them. I think uh, Neil Ferguson has a very good point that there's a 1941 dynamic here that we are risk. um, uh, And this gets to the point I was about to make that we risk provoking China precisely when we're weak. The last point I'd like to say just on the on the earlier point is that we are not doing enough relative to the scale of the threat. And that gets to your third point, which is it's possible that the Peter Zihans or the Hal Brands and Michael Beckley's are right that China's on the verge of collapse. I don't think that's a prudent strategic assessment because we should prepare for the downside because the consequences of being wrong on that would be catastrophic if, if we're wrong. Personally, I'm also somewhat skeptical, but that almost doesn't matter. Um, and to your point about the semiconductors, I'm trying to get a good sense of that. I, I, some people say it's quite significant. I was talking to a very well-informed person yesterday who was saying this is going to hold them back for maybe a couple of years in certain areas so that it actually might not. And that actually is in some ways could be even relieving because it actually relieves the Neil Ferguson concern. So I I think the way to look at what the administration is doing, frankly, is that they are doing a number of good things within the construct that we have current that we have been pursuing, which is the walk and chew gum construct. But that is woefully inadequate for the scale of the threat. So what is the scale of the threat? What's the best analogy? You mentioned Neil Ferguson, he talks about Cold War II. Is he right? Is a is this uh, Europe in the 1930s? Is this Napoleon? What, what's the best analogy? Probably the best analogy would be Great Britain and Imperial Germany, uh, just in terms of scale and the nature of the kind of government that we're dealing with. But I think Neil is basically right. I mean, there was an, an embarrassing, I think, self-discrediting error made by Robert Kagan in his massive piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, last weekend 
in which he point he he contended that um, China was less powerful relative to the U.S. economy than the Axis powers were, which is just totally incorrect. The Chinese economy, in market exchange terms, is probably something on the order of three quarters of the size of the American economy, but that's probably artificially inflated by the dollar and the role of service services in 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 the American economy. But in purchasing power parity terms, the Chinese economy is potentially larger. Kagan then I think made the situation worse by claiming that the Soviet Union if you added it to the Axis powers, was larger than the United States, except that proves my point, because the United States allied with the Soviet Union. So, I mean, actually, there is no historical analogy. This is the first time that we have faced, as an international power, as a developed power on the world stage, an economy that is even remotely comparable, let alone potentially larger than our own. Are you worried that this war will be less cold and more hot? Are you worried about an invasion of... Taiwan, do you think we're doing enough to forestall that? What sort of time frame do you imagine this will take place in? I'm very worried. I think there's a very good chance that there could be a hot war. I don't make predictions. I don't know what's in Xi Jinping's head. I don't know the future, et cetera, et cetera. But I look at the factors, and I think there is a very real uh, set of incentives for the Chinese to act militarily, partially because, as we can see with the Russians, economic sanctions don't actually really work. So the Chinese are not going to gain regional hegemony and global preeminence through economic sanctions alone. It's basically, to be very simple about it, it's basically the use of direct military force. And there are reasons to think that they could uh, succeed. And I've been very, I was very put off by a very sanguine assessment from the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy Colin Call yesterday on on the internet or whatever that was dismissive of these. You know, General Minahan, the Air Mobility Commander, said, you know, predicted it's in 2025. I think those two extremes are wrong. The correct one is what General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, says. We don't know, but we have to be as ready as possible, precisely in order to deter it. I agree with Assistant Secretary of Defense Eli Ratner, who said yesterday, it's not inevitable. We can get through this decade. I do not I disagree with Graham Allison's The World, and this is where I disagree with Neil, that it's not futile. We can do it, but we have to laser focus. And to answer your question, we are not doing enough because what is enough? Nobody knows. But why even get close? And that's where and we are cutting it very close. I mean, I'm not in favor of really increasing the defense budget, but like we should either be increasing the defense budget or cutting a lot of stuff in the military to focus on China. But we're not doing that. Meantime, we're supporting a proxy war in the Ukraine. And that's not a comment about the just justness of the Ukrainians cause. They are in a just cause. But the purpose of American foreign policy is not missionary work, as Kissinger said. It's to advance and protect the interests of the American people. Hey, uh, thanks for joining. This is Rob here. Um, so it's impossible, though, for me, although I agree with you that it's that this is new and something entirely different. It's impossible for me not to apply the Soviet Union Cold War model to this, right? It's just, I, I just, my brain doesn't work any other way. So I've, I've got this example, and I, I know it's imperfect, but I'm still going to use it. It seemed like that was the the training wheels, tinker toy version of this, because we were not enmeshed economically in the Soviet Union at all, really. Like every now and then we sent them wheat. That's about all we did. Um, and we used that wheat as lever to get concessions, usually social concessions, a lot of times, uh, you know, letting Soviet Jews leave Soviet Union. Um, so the question is, as we disentangle our economies with the, with the Chinese, which we're kind of doing, or at least gesturing to with these sort of semiconductor niches, et cetera, their response is going to be to one of two things, right? One is let's wait and build up our own. And that delays, you know, our regional ambitions for X number of years as we, you know, develop that. Or it could be let's strike now. 
let's do this before before the Americans inoculate their tech industry and their manufacturing industry and all the things that they, they need to like we need to disentangle from China in order to do that in order to have a nice clean playing field on which to sort of protect Taiwan or whatever we want to do. So which is it? Is it when we buy time, are we buying time for them or are we buying time for us? Well, that's a great question. And that's that's one that people are thinking about on both sides of the Pacific uh, a great deal. I, what I would say is that's one of the reasons why the Cold War analogy is imperfect. My, my partner and great friend, Wes Mitchell, wrote a very good piece in the Wall Street Journal last year, kind of rebutting a sort of, I would say, a linear application of the Cold War analogy. Obviously, there's a lot of, the, you know, I mean, the Cold War is an example of a strategic competition, which is common in history. So this is it's likely to be consistent. I'm a realist. I look at history. It's likely to be consistent with that. I actually think the economic stuff is dramatically overstated in its importance in the, in the public debate, and the military balance is understated. And this gets at my basic view, which is that countries are unlikely to concede to Chinese hegemony through the application of economic leverage. And we've seen that already. Right. Now, the Chinese are preparing in things like dual circulation for the imposition of American sanctions. Ask yourself why they would do that. Um, and also to generate leverage on the United States. Now, that can work on the margin, but our experience of economic sanctions, including against the Russians right now, is they don't work very well. They can erode capability on the margin, like, you know, missile production and so forth, but they don't generally get at, like, bringing countries to their knees. We've tried this repeatedly over the last hundred years, and it's been a record of woeful lack of success. What this means is the military balance is what is what's important. Okay, so that 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 does remind me and does seem to sort of tickle my uh, you know, Reagan Cold War, Reagan Cold Warrior memories, right? Okay. Because he absolutely did make a commitment to rebuilding the military, to being yep. sort of bellicose to the Soviet Union, to being extremely extreme, well, you know, evil empire, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, being extremely, di but at least the, for the, for, for there were four years of aggressive action. You know, he, we put MX missiles into Germany, right? Or whatever, whatever we put, we 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 did. We armed, you know, we 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 also deployed MX missiles. Yeah, exactly right. So we we did that. And which I yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. That's right. I got I got my missiles mixed up. Um, but we did all that. That was the name we came up with. Much more, much more <laughs> pleasant. Oh, the P. Yes, yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. Right. That's exactly right. But it turned out it was. It was a cynical name, and people people interpreted it cynically. But it turned out it did the job, right? Well, so, I would. Yeah. I mean, sorry. Go ahead. I would just say, isn't that a good, is that an example of, you make a well, commitment to- Well, I mean, to, I want to uh, reclaim Reagan from the neo-Reaganites, the Bob Kagans and the Bill Crystals, because I think they play up a kind of Reagan uh, as if he was George W. Bush in 2005 and saying, we're going to end tyranny in the world and we're going to use our military everywhere. If you look right. at the Reagan record and you step back and you look at it over the scope, we had withdrawn from Indochina before him. And it, it somewhat initiated under the Carter administration, but Reagan accelerated genuinely peace through strength, right? Which was major buildup right. of American military forces, pressure on the Soviet Union, you know, working with our allies, including ones that we might not, you know, that Carter didn't like to work with, like the Saudis or the Filipinos or the Philippines or or some of the South American countries, et cetera, et cetera. And then press it hard. I mean, very hot rhetorical temperature, but almost never employed the military. Granada right. and Lebanon, which, you know, Granada was almost like sort a of learning kabuki. experience. Yeah. So and Lebanon like, was a disaster. And then transitioned. It actually is what my view is, is we need to be hawks to get to be doves. Like Reagan okay. probably was able to do it in his own administration. I think that's how we should look at it over time. I want I, to get I accept to all of that. Cuts. 
but we yeah, have to be I accept all of that, right? Yeah. Uh, and I guess, I'm, again, I return to this imperfect com- comparison because it's the only one I know, right? Yeah. Um, Reagan was lucky. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. Uh, I, I, great president, right? I mean, yeah. uh, no disrespect to Reagan. It's great right? to He's be lucky. That's president. a great virtue. Yeah. <laughs> right. But he was lucky. He had Margaret Thatcher. He had Pope John Paul II. Uh, he had um, a difficult cold. relationship with um, West Germany, but in the end, they they acquiesced. He had NATO partners that believed, whether they believed it in their hearts or not, or whether they were secret communists, that that a strong Europe was going to deter the Soviet Union. My question is, all right, who who's the NATO in this fight with China? Who who do we? In a sort of a clockwise fashion around the globe, who's going to be the Margaret Thatcher to our, <laughs> I'm going to say President Biden. He also had Mikhail Gorbachev, which was very, and he saw that. Which that's was right. Very, that's right. Right. That's very true. That's very true. Which I, I don't, I don't see a Mikhail Gorbachev in the next no. generation of Chinese. And they, they've learned that lesson. They're not, they're not going to repeat that experience, yeah. I think. Um, well, I mean, Shinzo Abe, uh, obviously tragically assassinated, but a, a critical figure. Japan is, is increasing defense spending. Like you could think of them as West Germany. Australia is doing a lot. The new government in, in the Philippines, uh, Marcos government. Um, to some extent, the Europeans, I generally am pretty critical of particularly the Western European countries like Germany. Um, but you know, Poland is really doing a great job. Uh, you could say that the Israeli government, uh, India for sure, uh, the Modi government is definitely very aligned. So I think, look, I mean, it, that that's the, we, we have an alignment of interests uh, about fear of China, and that's and that's coming together. Do you see that actually happening? Or, or oh, yeah, we, this, is, this is an analysis yeah. I agree with. But do you see it happening in a in in the Biden administration? Do you see them sort of collecting the pieces yes. they need to play this chess game? Yes, and it started under the Trump administration. It's continued under the Biden administration, and the, and the reality is, it's mostly due to Xi Jinping and the growth of Chinese power and its more aggressive wielding. It's not. You know, again, we tend to have our debates about um, uh, about who's you know, which administration is better and so forth. It is a material. But the fundamental factor driving, say, India's change or Japan's increase in defense spending is not the Trump administration, or the Biden administration. It's fear of China. Speaking of fear of China, how worried should I be about the balloon? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's a little hard for me because I, you know, to me, I like marinated in this stuff. So I'm like, oh, the Chinese are flying a balloon over us. What else is new? Like what what other thing could they get? But it obviously pierced the the sort of the bubble on American popular perception. I think you should be afraid of the what the balloon signifies, which is a Chinese military, Chinese military that has a global reach and global ambitions and is planning on uh, conducting attacks on the on the American uh, homeland. I think it's reasonable to surmise in the end of a conflict over over Taiwan. And you have a political leadership that's increasingly willing either to use it or to sign off on using it. So it is. I was asked on German television the other day, I said something along these lines. She said, well, that's very scary. And I was like, yeah, I'm scared. I'm, I'm worried, like really worried. We should be. How about the green lasers aimed at Hawaii? This is something that popped up on my Twitter feed the other day that they blamed on China as well. Uh, I didn't see that. I mean, they're they're experimenting with all different kinds of capabilities and, you know, ways of surveilling and maybe spoofing us and getting us to do things. So, you know, they have a huge space architecture that they're building up. Mm-hmm. You know, the list goes on. I mean, w- w- when we talk about war with China, it seems that most people would think, well, it would just not be confined to a particular location in an exchange of you know, some ships going down. We lose a carrier group. It becomes big. It becomes intercontinental. It becomes ballistic missiles. China, I mean, big country, a lot of assets. They can lose a lot of things. But do they Mm -hmm. not consider a hypersonic missile into the Three Gorges Dam and what that would do? Or do they just think the West wouldn't do that because they have a veneer of humanitarianism? 
I don't think we would do that partially for that, but more because we're we know what the Chinese could do in response. And so it's not it's not it's just not a sensible strategy for us to to threaten to you know kill millions. Of, I mean, it's we didn't use the against the Red River dikes in in uh, in in North Vietnam. And the Chinese can do much more damage uh, to us than the, than the North Vietnamese could. So, um, I mean, a conflict would likely be centered in the Western Pacific, but it would uh, very likely extend beyond it, including in the American homeland, at least. Because, look, we, I, I, my view is we would have to conduct attacks on the Chinese mainland in order to be able to conduct an effective defense of Taiwan and other allies along the First Island chain. So what's good for goose is good. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Were we right to shoot down the balloon or did it not matter? I ask because my instinct is that you cannot allow that to go unnoticed, yeah. especially once the public is aware of it and you can't hide it anymore. If indeed they were trying to hide it, I think it's a, a foreign, you know, military affiliated aircraft operating without permission in our territorial airspace. You absolutely, you absolutely should have done. Do you think and that? It, and it should have Biden... been sooner, as far as I know. But except, it's not clear they knew about it. So that the, the timeline is evolving. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Were they trying to get away with not shooting it down? Did they not know about it? I think that's a reasonable suspicion. If the facts uh, come out that they did not know about it until it already had arrived, in, like over Montana, which I saw recently in the news. But some of their stories are evol- like they they they're changing. I mean, that's not not unusual. But um, look, I think. You don't fly military affiliated intelligence aircraft over our airspace. And if we see it coming and it's over and you maybe have three minutes to get out of there. But after that, it's baffling me, the American people, um, of which I'm a member, because we're told uh, that it was a one off. We were told that it happened during Trump. We were told also that it's sort of like the open skies things with the Russians where they do this and they do that. So everybody knows what the capabilities are. We wink, wink, nod, nod. And then we're told that we didn't see it. We didn't know it was there until it was over Montana and somebody eyeballed it. I mean, we were sort of taught to believe in the 80s that NORAD was so good and so twitchy that a flock of starlings would get the ICBMs all heated up. And now you're telling us this thing can float in and nobody sees it until, you know, yeah, that's part of the reason to use a balloon people joke about balloons but hey it's great loiters it's very advanced in a lot of ways and norad has atrophied over the last couple decades i mean there's the canadians are finally doing more on their part and investing in it but yeah i mean we this is this gets this gets it like our military is amazing i didn't serve in the military so i'm like but like our military is phenomenal but we shouldn't just assume that it's like you know, the Harlem Globetrotters against the Washington generals. <laughs> what do you make of the of the Chinese response to our shooting it down? I mean, the stones on these guys to just to upbraid us for having uh, done what we did uh, is a remarkable diplomatic posture. I mean, it's usually usually we get lies and the rest of it. But that. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you glean? From they the seem response? to have they, backed down a little bit. They, they did. They did offer a kind of an apology. So they I think they've been caught out in ways that they maybe didn't ante- anticipate. So but my view is like, why should we be? seeking to cooperate with them at this point, which is sort of delusional anyway, since it is largely a zero-sum game at this point. Um, instead, if they need... I think that basically they're on a charm offensive. The leopard hasn't changed its spots, but they're hurting because of the economic implications, uh, zero COVID, um, you know, perceptions around the last party Congress, et cetera. So they're looking to, like, turn down the temperature. Well, you know, if you're in a long-term strategic rivalry... That's the time to kind of push things. I'm not saying that we like you know, invade China, obviously, but what I'm saying is we should not be letting them off the hook when it's convenient for them. You hinted at something earlier, and if you, if you didn't correct me, I wonder 
what the opportunity cost is of our involvement in Ukraine. I am strongly in favor of Ukraine, as you suggested. You are, they were invaded. I have no uh, moral problem with them fighting back. They must. And I have no moral problem with us helping them either. But is there a real opportunity cost there financially, militarily, the public's attention span? And if so, what is it? Absolutely. I think, I mean, I wrote a piece a year ago and got a lot of flack for it saying, don't let Ukraine become a distraction from Taiwan. And it has become one. I mean, look, we I mean, dollar figures. I mean, here's the, the basic point to keep in mind. We're not where we need to be. And the trajectory is negative, especially over the next few years, coming years, vis-a-vis a defense of Taiwan. Of course, Taiwan is not the point. Taiwan is, a, is, is about the disposition of Asia as a whole, which is the world's primary theater. So we should be changing in the direction of China, not the status quo beforehand was not tenable either. And in that context, we've given $100 billion to, to Ukraine, and we wouldn't even give $2 billion in grants to Taiwan. Not because I mean, the Taiwanese are rich, but this is not about the Taiwanese. This is about an effective American deterrent and defense, so large American numbers of Americans won't die. By the way, the defense industrial base, people are saying, oh, it's great. Ukraine, we're, we're motivated. If you watched testimony last, uh, I think yesterday, the day before, from like Dave Norquist, former Deputy Secretary of Defense, he's head of the NDIA. The things are moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, we've woken up to the problem. But I mean, you, in the last month or so, there have been multiple studies and r- reports coming out about the inadequacy of the defense industrial base. And a lot of the weapons that are being sent to Ukraine would be relevant for Taiwan. And Taiwan is behind the curve. Moreover, there's a lot of subcomponents when you get in the nitty gritty. For instance, there's like one company that makes the turbofan for cruise missiles. There's just scarcity and the defense industrial base is in bad shape. Moreover, the political attention of the leadership, clearly the president even mentioned Taiwan in the State of the Union, and he's talking like, you know, he thinks he's Winston Churchill about Russia and Ukraine. So it's like that tells you a lot. So this walk and chew gum idea is delusional because the way I would think about it is like, well, maybe you chew gum on the one hand, but then you wrestle a dragon or sprint a marathon on the other because that's the order of magnitude. Which is which one is China, the walking or the chewing gum? Because that doesn't make sense. Um. Can I, can we, sorry, can I can I just elaborate? Yeah, because there have been a number of cases made by sort of fellow conservative sort of right of center people over the last few days and so forth about, you know, look, in theory, in theory, you we could have done something where Russia was sort of, quote unquote, decisively defeated, went back into a corner after six months and, you know, just kind of licked its wounds for 10, 15 years. That's not what happened. And it's not what's happening so, like, from what we can tell, so, for instance, there's an argument that um, the United States gains because it's not directly involved and it's attriting the capability of the Russian military. True, but that's only a net benefit if Russia doesn't mobilize to a war footing, which is what it's doing. Right. And, sustaining, doing. It, and sustaining its ammunition. Then it's actually worse because it's a more hostile power and it has a roughly equivalent military power. I mean, we can argue, but it's not clearly a net benefit. Another is... The war is, I mean, no, I mean, clearly the administration, Stoltenberg, others, the Ukrainians themselves, I think, are preparing for a long war. Putin himself is preparing for a long war. So this notion that we can like sequence it so that we like beat the beat the Russian, we, the Ukrainians beat the Russians with our targeting information and weapons, and then we shift to Taiwan. It's not a realistic scenario. Moreover, what, what I find very frustrating from Hawks is it's, you know, and I consider myself more like instrumentally hawkish or dovish. I, I think it should be situationally dependent. But is it's one thing for the administration to say they can walk and chew gum at the same time, because their whole argument is you don't need to dominate. We, need, we can do less and still be safe. But hawks are the ones who've been saying for 10, 15 years that we haven't been spending enough on defense, that we need to be militarily dominant to be safe. 
So what is it? That, that, that doesn't even make sense, right? And that's what bothers me is like, I'd actually really like to see a serious argument that grapples with that scarcity that they've been talking about. For instance, you know, Reagan, SDI. For 40 years, there have been a lot of people in the missile defense community who've said, if we don't have an adequate missile defense, there's no way we can stand up to the Russians. Well, the reality is we don't have a missile defense today that's adequate to stand up to the Russians. And we're, we're supporting a proxy war in Ukraine. So is that just completely wrong? I mean, I personally support more missile defense for certain capabilities. I mean, where, where it makes sense. But I'm just saying, like, this argument is aspirational or sort of wishful thinking rather than, I think, grounded in, in the reality that we're seeing. My last question is about the American public. I was born towards the end of the Cold War. And in fact, my first memory of anything to do with it was when Ceausescu was killed. And uh, I heard it on the radio and asked my parents what all that was about. But if you look back, clearly the Cold War and the presence of the Soviet Union was a big force in our politics for years. And it created a coalition on the right that Republicans have found hard to put together again since 1990. I don't see the same level of interest in foreign affairs, in fear of China now. And insofar as people seem interested in China, it seems to be more to do with trade right. and coronavirus. Are you worried, as I am, that if China did invade Taiwan, unless there were huge numbers of American deaths or something that was so egregious as to wake everyone up, that a majority of Americans would just say, I don't want to get involved? I'm very worried that is that you have put your finger on it. So I think that uh, there is a real sense that China is a threat, but it's basically seen in the economic and sort of cultural TikTok type stuff. And the military threat seems distant and removed. And the scale of what people are talking about in terms of the costs versus what the American people are prepared to bear is not that they don't necessarily match. I mean, the example I use, and I'm not sure this is justified because China is a much larger economy than the USSR was now. Europe was completely destroyed in 1949 and so forth. So it doesn't completely map. They had, you know, a massive standing force in, in Eastern Europe, et cetera. But, um, I mean, what I think is, is what I really worry about is that Americans would say, um, you know, I sympathize with Taiwan, but I'd rather just kind of bring home, sh you know, uh, reshore uh, industry and manufacturing and we'll live to we'll live to fight another day. I don't think that's actually a prudent strategy. But what I really worry about is that um, that that and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, and this is a really subtle point. So I'm glad that you brought up is. Part of the reason, what is it that we need to do to have that safe deterrent and defense vis-a-vis -vis China? We don't just want to be on the margin where it's like, oh, hey, 50,000 people are going to die in the first two weeks, but we can do it because the American people don't have the perception of the stakes to justify that. They're going to say, what? I don't think, including even hawkish members of Congress, I'm not sure would support that if the chips are down. So the critical thing is because it's so important, like, I think there's a mismatch between what's actually at risk and what people think is at risk. And I understand why that is. I mean, it's not Joseph Stalin. It's not the Gulag. It's not the Holodomor, right? But that, but it's it's actually a much more powerful force that, and in a future that we can't control. So what we want to do is we want to have a much more confident denial defense forward that would bring our costs down. And this is a point I make to our allies. It's so important to bring our costs down because we're the only, it's not out of charity. It's because the American people are going to blink. And I think I think on the right, 
Now, in, in, in the Congress and particularly in the Senate, you have a lot of kind of traditional neoconservative voices. But my impression of the voting public, particularly on the Republican side, is like, what? Another war? That's why there's a skepticism about Ukraine, which we're not even directly involved in. Right. So this really, really, really worries me. And this is one of the reasons that I'm so against the further intervention, certainly in Ukraine directly. Again, I support supporting them consistent with the prioritization of Taiwan, but certainly getting into war in the Middle East is we've already blown a lot of the political will and resolve that would be necessary for a fight. This is what makes me so angry about the Robert Kagans and the John Boltons of the world is we have spent that political resolve in wars that were not truly existential, you know, that were not central to our interests and did not go well. And now we need to be really careful and husband it so carefully. And I got to say, I mean, I don't mean to go on, but like as a Republican, the next president, and I personally hope it's a Republican, is going to be president in 2027. Now, nobody knows if Xi Jinping is going to go in 2027. But you know what we do know, according to Bill Burns, the liberal Democrat appointee CIA director, I don't know what his politics are, but the administration, he says Xi Jinping, American intelligence says Xi Jinping wants to have the ability to invade and occupy Taiwan in 2027. It's kind of like, uh, well, I mean, you're not going to get too much more of a tip off than that. Yeah. Yeah. So that really, really worries me. That is the issue. Last question before we let you go. And this has been just absolutely fascinating. The Belt and Road Initiative, which has been going on for several years, the the application of soft power, the major country diplomacy effort to get all these other countries into the Chinese umbrella. Um, is that at odds with wolf warrior diplomacy? Is that at odds with this new aggressive posture or is it walking and chewing gum for China as well? And how is the BRI doing for them? Are they actually accumulating more resentful, sullen satraps, governments that really don't like the fact they're indebted to them now? Or are they actually hoovering up resources and uh, precious and unique rare earths and the rest of it uh, that will enable them to to do exactly what they want to do, which is to economically, militarily and diplomatically dominate? So my view, which I referred to earlier, is that there is that there there are attempt to develop economic leverage and use it to establish a kind of soft empire, if you will, is is actually not working and in fact is backfiring. And that's simple because people basically people basically won't give in to economic pressure for something generally speaking that's like central to their political identity. It's, for instance, very hard to find examples of embargoes or blockades leading to the capitulation of an enemy nation. Um and that's like the most effective form. By the way, there are also multiple alternative. I mean, China's a huge economy, but there are multiple alternative routes, right? We see, for instance, I mean, literally every country in Asia and increasingly ones in Europe have basically faced China's economic coercion and responded by diversification and not giving in. Australia being the most noble example, perhaps. India, Japan over rare earths, Taiwan itself and the sunflower movement, the United States, now Canada, uh, Philippines over bananas. I think Taiwan also over uh, pineapples. Uh, now in Europe, you see it and it's basically backfiring. And and that's, you know, so if you try to use sanctions country, I mean, look at the I mean, look at our experience. It's not very it's not very encouraging, even with like really poor and relatively weak countries like North Korea, you know, even Iran. It doesn't really work very well. Um, economic sanctions or Cuba. I'm not saying that those causes are un, unjust in our, in our favor, but the strategy didn't yield the results that we wanted. The second thing is I think the Belt and Road, they actually need to expect to make money out of. So to take a Cold War example, <clears throat> the Soviets would just like throw around money and then use it for political leverage. The Chinese, I think, actually are expecting to make money or other kind of economic benefits out of it, employment and so forth. And that makes it harder to turn that into, into political leverage. So th this is good news because it means... <clears throat> That I don't think we need to, 
I don't think we need to worry about their economic leverage quite as much. I don't think we need to decouple fully. I do think we need significant selective decoupling. It also means that what happens in our societies, you know, I, I hate all the misinformation, disinformation stuff anyway. I'm a free speech guy. But I also think it doesn't add up strategically. Like countries aren't going to give in by being hoodwinked or I mean, look, it's a problem that people are bought off in Wall Street. And we've been hearing from some of them recently. But but it's not some it's a manageable problem. The bad news is it makes the military instrument that much more attractive for the Chinese and they're building a military to do it. And for instance, one of the indicators that we see, you know, going back to the uh, Reagan stuff, 400 ICBM launchers, silos, they exceed our number of launchers. Now, that's not like the end. That's not the only indicator. It's not the end of the world. We could pettifog it, but it's a big deal. And it tells you they're the thing it tells me that they're preparing to do is fight a war under the nuclear shadow against the United States. If only I'd stopped you at the good news is we could end on a happy note. But no, you it had is to go, fixable. It is you fixable. had to go with a bit. Oh, we need urgency. It's been you keep saying that. That's that's that is your. I mean, just that's my message. That's your message that this is fixable. Mm-hmm. That it's fixable. We can have peace. Start, but we need to act. We're like we need yeah, to act. Tom now. Brady in the off season. We don't need Mark Milley saying that our military can never be beat. We need the, the attitude that Tom Brady let every off season. He said, "Don't take anything for granted." Act as if it's your first time in the NFL, whatever, you know, what I'm sure whatever he said. That pep talk is what we need. The book is Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. The author and the guest, Elbridge Colby. It's been great. Uh, Thanks. I hope to talk to you again in the future as things change or don't. And uh, thank you for being on the Ricochet podcast today. Great pleasure, gentlemen. Uh, Okay. Well, it's harrowing, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Everyone's no, literally is on this German. She's like, that's very scary what you're saying. Like, yeah, it is. It's scary. I know I'm scared. That's why I'm out of here, you know. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. It is scary. Well, it is. And I mean, you, you have a great guest, you have a great conversation, very knowledgeable, very articulate. And you, you just think, man, I hope his Wikipedia page in 20 years says, and here's somebody who was just wrong about everything, as opposed to a prescient voice, Cassandra, and all the rest of it. Um, but the fact is, it is fixable if we start talking about it, if we start talking about it. And hey, you folks, um, you can talk about it at Ricochet, of course, but you can also talk about oh, it nice. in real life, in real life. IRL. I ought to hand it to you, uh, Rob, uh, because, yeah. you know, you're the guy. Darn Right, you're the guy who was doing these uh, meet space meetup uh, promos. All these, you know, I took it over. I took your mantle. Didn't do it. That, that's good. I'm glad you did a good job. You're doing a good job. Like you listened. Uh, why don't you do it then? From from now, I mean, I thought you were going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this: it's that uh, you know that the 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 web is fine and virtual is is fine and dandy and all that stuff, but nothing actually beats IRL. And that's why if you join Ricochet, you can come to, and we want you to come to, the meetups. They happen, they're fun, and there's some that are coming up. You can meet the actual king of stuff, John Gabriel, uh, at the event he's hosting in Phoenix, which will happen mid-March. That gives you plenty of time. Uh, And then a bunch of us are going to be in New Orleans for the French Quarter Fest. Uh, I know I will be. I'm not quite sure. I I don't have the dates in front of me, but they're on my calendar, so I'm going to be there. Uh, And my advice to you is to... uh, if you want to have a significantly, you want to have a conversation with me that that I will remember. It's mm. the you got to come for the whole thing because I'm not. I I I, I enjoy my time in New Orleans, and mm. so I'm just telling you, <laughs> uh, we might have to have we might have to say things twice to each other. Uh-huh. Uh, and then um, there's a set on April 22nd. Um, Flickr has set the date. April 22nd is the date for the Stillwater, Minnesota. Oh, 
Fantastic. I have something in my little on my screen here. Um, and I there's a possible James Lilacs. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. When, uh, what, what, appearance. What, what's the date on that again? April 22nd. April 22nd. I think I'm going to be around, so that would be great. That'll be good, unless I am in in England or Barcelona. Oh, There's nice. I'm all over the road in, in, in April. Look, if, uh, if those dates I just mentioned are not good for you or the locations aren't good for you, there is a solution. Just join Ricochet. And have your own. And have your own. What and we need Ricochet a, will come sorry. to you. We need a Ricochet karaoke contest, too, because uh, Bert Bacharach died, oh, 94. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask you guys, to name your favorite Burt Bacharach song. There's a moment in 1978, 79, I think so, Stiff Records put out a live album. And it had Ian Drury, it had Reckless Eric, it had... uh, It had Nick Nick Lowe, of course. But it had Elvis Costello, came out and did a rave-up song. And then Elvis Costello, who was this angry, geeky guy with the National Health Service glasses and the spitting and the bad teeth and all the rest of it, comes out and and says to this raucous, drunk pub crowd. This is a song by Burt Bacharach and Al David. And, he, and Elvis Costello, yeah. prefiguring what we would all come to know as his love of the great songbooks and his, his appreciation for craftsmanship, saying, I just, don't they work together. Do my, I just don't know what to do with myself. Uh, not the best song for Elvis and his range at the time, but he introduced... A million new waivers to Burt Bacharach, who was a, who was just a melodic genius. So I'm going to ask you guys to tell me your favorite song, not to sing it, <clears throat> no. But just- we'll tell you my favorite song, and I'll also tell you some uh, Burt Bacharach stories. Right, favorite song I think is "Say a Little Prayer," although um, they're all fantastic. Um, this guy's in love with you is uh-huh. unbelievably beautiful. Don't hog them all. Um, he uh, he. Uh, when I was living in L- on the beach in L.A. in Santa Monica, he was uh, staying, I think, temporarily in the place called the Sea Calling, which is on the beach around the corner. And we had a mutual friend, and she was a singer. And so we, uh, the mutual friend and I, would walk our dogs together in the morning, and he would always sort of come out. Um, and uh, and he always looked like fantastic. You know, he's an older guy, but like he just looked like the silver hair and the towel. He would like in these incredibly cashmere sweats with like a rolled up towel around his neck. He always looked like he was just Sinatra. Like, you know. Like walked out of a Columbo episode. Oh my God. He looked like, he looked like a movie star. Um, and two things. One, I asked him about that because he had just come, done, done that album with Elvis Costello. And I asked him like, what was their working relationship like? Cause I would, you know, I, you know, we were mm-hmm. sort of friendly, I guess. And he said, Oh yeah, we got together a little bit. Mostly that we would just send each other. We would call each other up and leave bits of songs on each other's voicemails. <sighs> and I said, wow. Do you still have those voicemails? And he looked at me like, why would I have no? He said, No. Why would I keep them? Like, it's like a stupid question. Like, but the other thing he would do is, I, and I mean this with all due respect to the man. He was um, I mean, you know, he was at one point married to one of the most beautiful women in the world, Angie Dickinson. Um, he was a he liked the ladies. He was a ladies, he that he, he was that guy. Yeah, and so I would be standing there with my friend, who she's a you know very lovely singer songwriter, and we would be there, and you could he would you physically this man, I and mean, you know I think he was married at the time, and she's married at the time. It was it was just instinctive. He was you could feel him slowly moving in front of me to kind of push me out of the trio. <laughs> Like, this was like, he just wanted me somewhere else so he could focus on the girl. And I thought that, that is such hipster behavior. It was Uh a very gentlemanly, but I thought this guy is, he's, he's blocking me here. 
I was um, going to say, I bring up I, a, I bring up an album that I heard in 1978. Rob tells an anecdote that actually involves Elvis Costello and being rooster blocked by the man himself <laughs> physically. Yeah, right, right. Okay. It's an honor. It was an last honor time, for that Last guy. time yeah. I asked you for something anyway, like that. Because sorry, that, so that, that's my Burt Bacharach story. <laughs> Charles, your Burt Bacharach story. Well, I don't have a Burt Bacharach story, but I do have a favorite song, but uh, I also have a song that is not the best of his songs, but that I have a connection to because my dad had it on a tape when I was very little. And I only learned yesterday that Burt Bacharach wrote it. And I was astonished. In fact, my jaw hit the floor when I learned. Can I get, can I guess? Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll write it down if I'm right. Go ahead. You tell You say. When I learned that the song 24 Hours from Tulsa by Gene Pitney. Yes. Was written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Often people don't know that song. I have some friends from Oklahoma and they live in Tulsa. And when I see them, I always say, you know, that song by Gene Pitney, 24 hours from Tulsa. And they look at me as if I have seven heads, but in my mind, this is one of the great songs that everyone knows because we had this tape. We would play it while we were having barbecue outside at uh, 50 songs, you know, it was full of, uh, Gene Pitney and, you know, Ricky Nelson, that kind of stuff. And this song was the first thing on the second side. And I just sort of knew about it right from Mike and remember. And he wrote it. Are you kidding me? And then you do that when you look through his canon, which is enormous. And you went, oh, he wrote that. And he wrote that. And he wrote that. And he wrote that. But I mean, I think musically, my favorite Burt Bacharach song is is one that everyone would choose, which is Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Oh, it's great. Right. It is. And I think, and I was, you know, I was around when that came out and I was young and it made all the compilations and it was on the radio constantly. Wasn't it? And now of course it's regarded as sort of a relic of that era. BJ is forgotten. And we have the sort of music video images of the Butch and the Sundance kid clowning around in their Western ways, riding on the bike. Ride the bike. The Catherine Rod, right. All of that. You can throw all of that away, throw the, just take the lyrics away from it and just revel in the absolute gorgeousness and ingenuity of the melody itself. And that's the thing about Bacharach is that he was writing pop songs at a time where there was still an intersection between where you could get something like that on the radio. When you think of the extraordinary melodic content of that song, and it's distilled like down to a nuclear pellet, we just take it for granted the way it moves and breathes and the way it, it modulates and the rest of it. That fit on the radio in those days. Does that fit on the radio today with auto-tuned voices and things that are programmed to be gestured for TikTok videos and the rest of it? It doesn't because we live in a far more meretricious culture. So it's a beautiful song. Also, maybe since you called that one, I'd have to say that it's always something there to remind me is of the same ilk mm-hmm. because it goes oh, and yeah, it, go, it, just, right. it, it, it just expands and flies and goes. And it, it, it's if you sat down to to predict where you think that song is going to go based on the opening, you you wouldn't be able to tell because you're not Burt Bacharach. But he and he talked about that. Mm-hmm. Go on. Yeah, I mean, he talked about that. Like the idea that you can't that that the the popular music is so predictable now. Those songs right. that he would write these long loopy things that would kind of end, and they didn't even have any hooks. Some of them were just had these. It just was the beginning, middle, and an end, and then it was over. 
Right. I mean, he actually he he was sort of aware of that how out of place he was. But it, but I mean, pop music has been formula was formulaic like 50, 60, 70 years before he came around. I mean, if you look at right. the, you look at the Tin Pan Alley, you look at the twenty, the even the Brill Brothers, the Brill stuff. You look at the twenties; it was all formula. Now and then, you'd get a guy who could break that and 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 do what Backrack did. And you're right; yeah. it's it's the inspiration. It's letting it go where it takes you, as opposed to having. Well, I got to turn out a hit. We're sitting here. We got to get one for the show uh, before you know we go down to the you know Schwab's for lunch. No, he was not that. He was one of a kind. Even to the fact that you could take a song like "Always Something There to Remind Me" and set it to the most intrusively computerized uh, percussion beat which a group sure. called Naked Eyes did in 1983. They hooked up with a producer named Tony Mansfield, who was a genius of his own right in a group called New Music. He's like a one-man band, essentially. And Naked Eyes handed to him this song, and he added this these, these rote synthetic drums right. that would be... I remember of, that. Right, and it's, I mean, it's a fascinating tune because the drums are... I was are, way are, too young to remember this, but I remember... <laughs> I remember listening to that sort of like uh like my freshman year in college or my um, right. senior year in high school so so the fact the fact that his melody could survive that and oh, add yeah. to it and it just shows you how much how much power and potency there was in what he did in the notes if you um if you uh, he had a bit a bit of a research i know we have to run but he had a bit of a resurgence in sort of popularity if not you know popular he was always popular but a bit of like he had a, a secondary moment mm-hmm. a lot of it happened because he sort of rec- he compiled all of his music because he felt like he wasn't getting music licenses for show business the way he expected. And so he sort of invested. I mean, the guy was rich as hell, but whatever. He invested in this, like, I think, four-disc set, which he sent around to a bunch of music supervisors in in in, uh, in L.A. to sort of remind them, hey, listen, I wrote every song, so you should use my songs and your stuff, which kind of helped. But also kind of created a little mini boom for him. And there's one um, uh, celebration that he sort of put together himself um, it's called One Amazing Night, I think it, it is. And it's a live sort of set of covers and a lot of like, you know, contemporary bands, young, younger bands doing cover versions of his songs. And it's just exactly what James is saying. It's like you realize just how solid those songs were. Well, I'm haunted they, now. You know, yeah, I'm haunted by the fact that he and Elvis Costello left melodic fragments. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Because you could actually, if you took one of those and fed it to AI to sing GPT, Max, maybe it could come up with you. That's what I'm. Okay, that is the only application of artificial <laughs> intelligence All right, we found willing one. to do, and it ties the show in a bow, and we're gone. Podcast was brought to you by me, by Rob Long, by Charles Cook, Elbridge, Cobley, and some guys behind the scenes, Perry and EJ and the rest of them who make this show possible, as do you, because you listen, and you go to Apple, and you give us those five stars, don't you? Don't you? And also, of course, those of you who belong to Ricochet.com and know what it means to your life and your internet peregrinations throughout the day, we thank you for listening, and we thank you for being a member, and you, if you're not, go do it. You'll never, you'll, you, you'll never regret the moment you, you, you signed up. You just won't see you in real space. See you in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week, guys. Thanks. See you fellas. Ricochet. Join the conversation.